So parents, be honest. When was the first time you said, and you thought you'd never say it, and then you did, how many times do I have to tell you? You know, your parents said it to you, and you thought, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it one day. I'm not going to say it. And then one day, something finally happens, and, you know, you've said it so many times. You look and say, how many times do I have to tell you? And it comes out in your parents' voice, and it's scary. And your kid has no idea that you just scared yourself, you know, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. What just happened? But let's be honest. How many times does God probably need to say that to us? How many times do I have to tell you? But he's gracious, he's loving, he's forgiving. He walks with us through the difficulties and us, you know, struggling to figure out the lesson. Because that's where we land in Nehemiah 13 is a lot of your Bibles will say Nehemiah's final reforms. How many of you have that heading that, you know, people put in there? That's not scripture that says that, but a lot of times your Bible will put a heading in there that says Nehemiah's final reforms. And the reason he has to have these reforms, again, is because they kind of go back on everything that they were supposed to do. And so look with me in Nehemiah 13, 1 through 3, just to start out, okay? And it says, on that day... They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now you may be thinking, didn't we already do that? Didn't this already happen? Why are we gathering the people again to read the law again and separate them from people of foreign descent? Well, Nehemiah tells us why. Okay, so go down to verse 4. It says, Now before this, Eliashib the priest, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered that Eliashib had done for to, what Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Wow. How would you like to be Nehemiah and come back to that? Tobiah living in the temple. But what else did he find? Look in verse 10. I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work, and that's the work in the temple, had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Go to verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. 
which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Go to verse 23. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So, Let's think about what's happened here. Nehemiah, you know, gets everything right. I mean, he, you know, they, they've made their commitments to God. They've made their oaths. They have walked where they're supposed to. They've got the wall built. Things are looking good. They got the temple functioning again. They're, they're bringing the tithes into the storehouse. I mean, everything looks good, right? So he's like, okay, you got this, right? And he leaves to go back because he's still in the service of the king, so he can't live in Jerusalem forever. So he goes back to serve the king, and while he's gone, like literally everything just falls apart. They quit doing all the things that he put in place, they quit. And it gets so bad that Tobiah, this person that has been their enemy from the beginning of this entire process, doesn't just reestablish himself as a presence. What does he do? He moves into the temple. A Gentile who has no business being in the temple at that point is living in the place where worship is supposed to be happening, where the, the storehouse for the grain and all of the things that make temple worship possible, he's now living in there. So what does that mean? That means temple worship has stopped. So they're not worshiping God. There's a Gentile living in the temple, they're doing business on the Sabbath, and they're intermarrying again with pagan people around them. I don't think Nehemiah was actually gone that long. And he comes back, and can you just think, I mean, what, what would be your reaction? You know, you come back, and you see him doing business on the Sabbath, and you're like, what's going on here? And you go to the temple to worship, and nothing's happening. And you're like, where are the Levites? They're not here. Where'd they go? And they're like, well, they've been gone since Tobiah moved in. Excuse me? Tobiah moved in. Yeah, he's living in the part of the temple over there. Okay. Would you be a little furious inside? After everything that Nehemiah did and the sacrifices he made, and, and I mean, you've seen how much he put into it, and out of his own pocket, he, he supported a large portion of the priests and everything while they got back on their feet. And within a few years, it all just falls apart. Why? Why would it fall apart like that? Well, I think the first reason is because the people had not learned to focus on God and not on man. This is huge. For all believers of all time, we have to have a standard that we look to that is not defined by any one person in this world, but is defined by God and the truth as he has revealed it in Scripture. Jesus Christ is our standard in all things. And when we take our focus off of him and we put it onto a person, these are the kind of things that happen every single time. We'll let go slowly, but we will start letting go of things of eternal value and we'll make compromises and Satan will make sure there is always someone there to lead that compromise. This time it was Tobiah and Eliashib, the priest, who still had 
his daughter married to, you know, was related to Tobiah. There will always be somebody that's willing to compromise or to lead you into compromise. What is it that stops us from doing that? It is a commitment to God. That no person in this world gets the commitment level that God gets from us. No one in this world gets our heart like God gets our heart. So that even if it's those closest to us for, you know, we, we hope it's not, but sometimes it can be. Even if it's those closest to us that want to lead us into the compromise, we look and we say, no, God's word tells me different. God said no. We have to learn to focus on God and not on man. Now, how do we know when we're doing that? How do we know when this truth of, of keep your eyes focused on God at all times has permeated the culture around us? You know, we know when it's an individual, that individual will be like Nehemiah, unwilling to budge on things that are sinful, always committed to the vision of God and pursuing it in their lives. I mean, we know it. We've all known someone like that in our lives that we could point to an individual that, yeah, they are solid. We know they're solid. Their faith is solid. They're not perfect, but man, they're always chasing after God. We all know that person, right? We have known that person in our lives. They're probably a large reason that you are here right now is because that person inspired you in your faith and you found God because of what they did. But we're not just talking about a person. How do we know when a culture, a larger culture, has adopted this? Well, it's what happens in the absence of leadership. Notice everything worked great when Nehemiah was there. He kept them all in line. I mean, he, he was a tremendous leader, and he was a very godly man. And it, it does speak to the influence that one person can have. But all of us, at some point, are going to go through a phase of life or a season, even short or long, where that kind of leadership is not going to be present, where that person may not be found. Then we have to ask, what happens? Does the train stay on the tracks or does it start wandering? Do, you know, does it get derailed somewhere along the way? Because clearly in Jerusalem, the train went off the tracks pretty quickly after Nehemiah left. Everything that Nehemiah did was because of his own passion, but the people had not made it a part of their core identity. They hadn't yet really adopted it for themselves so as soon as he was gone, and the consequences of, you know, I, I'm pretty sure when Nehemiah was there, nobody wanted to cross him. Like, you better not do that. Nehemiah's not going to be happy about that. And they thought, yeah, I don't. But as soon as he was gone, and those consequences were no longer present, what happened? Their enemy moved into their temple and stopped their worship. Think about how big that leap is. Their enemy moved into the temple. And everyone just let it happen. They just let it happen. And so in the absence of leadership, was faithfulness still the goal of the people? When we focus on God and not on man, that will happen. It will. It doesn't mean everything's you know, perfect, whatever, but I mean, we, there, there will be a core level of you know what, we're still here for God. And you know what, I'm going to brag on Grace Family a little bit for a moment. Because y'all have gone through a lot. And in the absence of that leadership, 
you know what? Your elders and your deacons and your people stepped up and said, we got to still focus on God and we still got to focus on the gospel. And we're still here today and we're starting to grow because that is at the core of our identity. But that's not always the case. In fact, that is rare. So I want you all, you know, they, they would never say this, but I want you all, when, when we're done here, to find an elder and tell them thank you. Because they, they did a tremendous job handling very difficult situations. Because most of the time, what happens is when leadership changes like that, and, and this is all over, this, we're going to look at another example, the train derails. And everybody's like, well, what do we do? What do we do now? Well, you know what? The great thing is, is God has told all of us what to do. We don't need one person to completely guide us in every aspect of our lives because God will do so through the Holy Spirit and through his word. And so we all can keep our eyes focused on God, at least at a core level of this. You know what? I am a Christian. I am going to follow God. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to pursue righteousness. And you know what? That shouldn't change no matter who's standing in this pulpit. It will never change because that's what it is to chase God, to follow God faithfully. And yet I've seen it in my own life where churches and organizations get so focused on an individual and their personality and their leadership style that when that person steps out or God changes the scene, people freak out and they're like, what do we do? What do we do? I don't, I can't, I don't know. How do I, how do I follow God now that I don't have this person to listen to? And I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. I have seen it where entire churches ground to a halt because that one person wasn't there to tell them what to do. And for me, as a new pastor in those situations, I thought, that's really odd because the command to worship did not change. The command to love your neighbor did not change. The command to pursue righteousness did not change from one person to the next. I'm not reintroducing, you know. It, it, even coming here, small groups are nothing new. How many of y'all were part of a small group before when we started these small groups? Yeah, you know, there's nothing new under the sun is what the scripture says. A whole lot of what we do has been done 30 years ago. We're just trying it again because a new generation is here. You know, let's do it again. But when we don't focus on God, this will happen to us. And there's even a, a really good biblical example of this. Okay? King Uzziah, king of Judah, he took the throne of Judah at 16 years old and reigned for about 52 years. Now that's some stability, right? That's stability. That's the, Okay, we know... We kind of know how the world's going to work. Uzziah wasn't perfect, but he was faithful. He was one of the kings that was faithful to God in, you know, in the end. And so the nation had stability. And then he dies. Do you think that sent some shockwaves throughout the nation? You think some people were confused now? It's like, oh, what are we going to do? How are we going to make it? What's our, you know, is, is God abandoning us as a people? Well, 
I, I read this uh, last week, but we're going to look at it again. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, this is, where does it start? Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So he's setting this as a moment of political upheaval, spiritual upheaval, a, a time of, you know, what is just basically unknown. I mean, people are now looking at the future differently. They're wondering, how are we going to go forward? And God gives the prophet Isaiah one of the most amazing visions in all of Scripture. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, why would that be important? Because the king had just died. And the throne was empty. And yet, guess what? The throne wasn't empty. And God is reminding the people of that. He's reminding Isaiah and he's reminding the people. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Woo! Would that vision shake you up a little bit? You better believe it will. And yet, this is at a moment when the nation, when, when Isaiah himself is a prophet, they're all wondering, like, Uzziah's dead. What's going to happen? For 52 years, he's been our king. That's a long time. And you know what God does? He gives a vision and says, hey, it's my throne. And I'm still on it. And I'm holy and I am powerful and I am majestic. And you need to get your eyes focused on me and not on the, the throne of the nation. God is giving them a renewed vision of, his self, of himself. His power, his majesty, his kingdom, his purposes... This vision continues, and he says, who will go? Who will, whom shall we send? And I, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. He's like, look, the work isn't done. Uzziah may have died, but there's more to happen here. We're not done, Isaiah. The nation will continue. The mission will continue. But in order for that to happen, Isaiah had to get his eyes focused back on the one who mattered. He had to focus back on God. And notice what was amazing about that is instantly he sees God. He becomes aware of his sin. God atones for that sin and says, look, it's, it's atoned for. Don't worry about it. And then he gives him a purpose and a mission and says, go. Immediately when he gets that new vision of God, suddenly he has a new mission from God as well. And he starts serving. And his life now has direction and purpose and he knows what he's doing. When we focus on God and not on man, we have that sense of vision. And that's what this has all been about. And the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem during Nehemiah's time did not catch that vision for themselves. So they had all of the, the right actions. The outward look looked healthy when Nehemiah left. Everything was functioning like it should. But unfortunately, it was all dependent on him. It wasn't in the heart of the people. And so when he left, what did the people do? Well, never mind. Whatever. And isn't it amazing how quickly 
a group of people can do that. You know, we've heard the story before of Moses going up on the mountain. You know, they've just parted the Red Sea. They've seen God do incredible miracles. Let the people out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt. I mean, it, how many of us are like, really? Because he goes up on the mountain to, to speak with God. And what do they do? They forge a golden calf. Immediately. There's something that happens with groupthink. Where we go dumb. And we just do individuals were like, no, I'm going to stay faithful to God. But somehow you get, you get large groups working together and we just like, we'll take it to the lowest denominator we can. Let's just lower that bar so far that we have to dig a hole and put it in there. And that's somehow what we do as, as a group. And we see that's exactly what happened with Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah comes back and he's like, oh, no, 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 this isn't happening and he does it all again, everything. He gathers the people together. He, he kicks Tobiah out of the temple. Like it says, he just grabs his stuff and throws it into the street, which seems kind of familiar to me. Does that sound like somebody else we know? Cleaning the temple? You see, throughout Scripture, Jesus, there's stuff about Jesus everywhere. Because he is the point. And Nehemiah goes in and sees his stuff in there where there's supposed to be the tithes and, and the supplies and everything for temple worship. And he sees him living in there and he's like, no, this ain't happening. And he just starts grabbing it, throwing it out. You got to go. Get out. And so how do we keep this from happening? Because when leadership changes, when leaders change, when all of this, it, it happens. When we get overly focused on the leader. We forget faithfulness ourselves. We forget what God has called us to do and for us to be ourselves. And we start taking on the identity of that other person. And I know that sounds weird, but I'm telling you, it happens. Two different churches I've served in, I have seen that firsthand where the identity of the people just got so wrapped up into the individual that they literally forgot how to worship God. They forgot the bigger purpose of what they were supposed to be doing. And I don't want that for here. I want us focused on God. I want us each serving God in the capacity He calls us to serve Him. But I want us to do this, this very thing that we are called to do, and that is to make yourself a living sacrifice to God. This is a call that He has for us. I mean, Tobiah set up shop in the temple for crying out loud. What would have been unthinkable was now commonplace. Now, how many know what I'm talking about with that? What was unthinkable is now commonplace. When Nehemiah left, there's probably nowhere in his mind he would have ever, ever thought that Tobiah would be living in the temple when he got back. You know how we know that? Because he didn't set up anyone to stop it. Nehemiah was a smart enough leader that we see he makes those changes now. He's like, okay, I'm putting this person in charge of this. And I'm doing, he sets up some safeguards of like, okay, yeah, I can't trust you as the priest to do the right thing. I'm going to put some other people in charge then that are faithful that will keep this from happening. Nehemiah never thought that that could happen. And so we don't know the exact process that led to this, but we know how it worked. And that is that too many people looked the other way. 
How many individuals in that moment looked and said, that's not right? But it's not really my place. And so they just keep going. And more and more, and people just look at it, and then they finally, people just give up, and they're like, yeah, yeah I guess it's okay. Guess what? It was never okay. And yes, it was their place to like, no, no, <laughs> he doesn't get to live in the temple. And even if they're alone, they're at least a voice that's speaking out for what is right and what is good in the world, what honors God, and you know what? God honors that. Even if we stand alone in standing up for what is right, we aren't truly alone because God is with us. Too many people looked the other way. Too many people who knew better compromised. And they made room for the devil and the devil moved in. Because he will do that. And so the Apostle Paul says in this very common uh, scripture, I want us to look at it again in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, you want to know what's good and acceptable and perfect to do in this world? You want to know the right thing? you got to die to yourself first. That is step number one. That is what a living sacrifice is. It means you look at your life as no longer your own, but an offering to God every single day. My life, my body, my existence is an offering to God. Paul tells us that's how we are to look at life. Every day, this is how we are to look at ourselves. Because a living sacrifice means it is a conscious decision. And what I see too much is too many times we all want to have God just take over. You know, right? The the whole Jesus take the wheel. That's not what he's saying to do. That is not scriptural, and I'm not picking on the artist there. I'm just saying that the concept is not scriptural. Because to be a living sacrifice means that you set yourself down behind the wheel and say, God, where am I going? It is not you take the wheel and you drive it and you just make it happen. No, it's what am I doing today, sir? What is it that you want from me? Where am I driving? And he says, you keep your hands on the wheel and you drive where I tell you to drive. And we don't get to hand it off. But there's too much spirituality today of wanting to wait for God to just make it happen. And he's like, no, you're going to walk in obedience, and that's where it's going to happen. And that won't happen if we don't consider ourselves a living sacrifice. That we make the conscious decision to die to ourselves and to come alive for God's purposes. And so a person can really inspire another person to do that, but they can't make the heart change for them. And so that's why you get a, a really strong leader like Nehemiah that comes along and he's like, we got to do it. And they lay out the vision and it's like, wow, yes, this is amazing. Let's do it. And then Nehemiah steps off the scene and everybody's like, yeah, you know what? Never mind. Never mind. Because it was never about them being a living sacrifice. It was about Nehemiah and the amazing things he was doing. 
But who was it about for Nehemiah? It was about God. That's why he was willing to sacrifice. That's why he was willing to do all that. That's why he was willing to put his life on the line to ask the king, can I go back and rebuild my city? Everything he did was because it was a vision from God and he wanted to honor God. Now imagine, and I really imagine this, okay? Close your eyes if you have to. What if Nehemiah, there had been a hundred people like Nehemiah in Jerusalem at that time that just wanted to honor God that much that they were willing to do whatever it took to honor him in that city. You think Tobiah would have been living in the temple? Not by a long shot. That would have been stopped at the first discussion. The first time that even, you know, was an idea, somebody would have shut that down and said, absolutely not. That's a sin and that's wrong and we won't be a part of it. It would have been done out of arrogance or belligerence. Absolutely not. It would have been done out of faithfulness to God to simply know. The answer is no. That's not what God wants. And why is it so important that we do this? Because 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is looking for those who are not offering themselves as living sacrifices so that he can manipulate them. That's what he's looking for. Who's not living as a sacrifice to God? That person isn't, okay, I can get them. I can get them to compromise. I can get them to to start down a path that they have no idea where it's going, but it's going to end up in a horrible place for them and other people. And I can do it. And so this isn't about living in fear. It's about living in wisdom. Because if Satan can't get you to stop, you know, building the wall, he'll get you to open the gates. If he can't stop you from worshiping, then he'll just go up and set up a room in the temple to destroy the worship. He'll take whatever we give. And that's why Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't fit in. The world's going to pressure you to fit in in a certain way that is going to go against the grain of what God wants. And we are not called to fit in. We are called to stick out. We are called to be different. And that difference is our faithfulness. That difference is not that we're better than the world or some other people. Humility needs to remind us we all need Jesus today just as much as we did the first day because we all have sin that needs to be forgiven But we are to be different because we are set apart for God's purposes. And so we have to do, we have to make ourselves a living sacrifice. And then as we go through life, don't get comfortable, get serious. Comfortable Christianity, I think, is one of the most dangerous places for a Christian to be. What happens when we get comfortable every single time? And I mean, without fail, what happens? We stop serving. We start committing ourselves to things other than God. And it may not be overtly malicious in the beginning. It may just be, well, I prefer this style of worship and I and then it turns into I can only worship to this style of worship. And then it turns into, well, if you want that, you go over there. And you look, all of a sudden we're dividing. And people wonder why. 
You see, we can't get comfortable in our Christianity. We have to be a living sacrifice daily, which is transformation, which is renewal of mind. So first, let's look, what does being comfortable look like? I mean, besides the obvious compromises that at the end getting comfortable brings, there are other signs. I want you to listen to 2 Kings 20, 16 through 19. And this fits in with our whole story of Nehemiah because this is the beginning, way back before they went into captivity. Okay? It says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Wow. And Hezekiah was one of the good kings. What does he say? He just found out. He's like, things have gotten so bad and the nation has been so unfaithful that God's going to send you all into captivity, which is where the city was destroyed, which is why the, the walls needed rebuilt in the first place. And everything Nehemiah did goes back to this. And what was Hezekiah's response? Oh, God, forgive us for our sin. We're sorry that we've become so complacent. God, if you will just give us another chance, we'll do it right. What did he say? He's like, oh, that's okay, so long as it doesn't happen in my lifetime. Wow, that's horrible. I I remember the first time I read this in Scripture and I thought, man, no wonder God's sending them into captivity. At least there will be peace and security in my day. You just found out your entire nation that you are king of is going to fall. And your main concern is your own comfort. That's what happens when we get comfortable. We stop caring about future consequences for the things we're doing now. Comfort means I'm more concerned about the present than I am about the future. And that always leads to bad things. And so how serious was Nehemiah? What does being serious look like? Because Nehemiah didn't get comfortable. So what does it look like to be serious? In those days... Also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. You remember that? Look, verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat them, beat some of them and pulled out their hair. You think Nehemiah snapped? I, I, you know, he came back, he's like, Tobiah, he's throwing everything out, and then he finds these people that the, the main reason all of this started way back at Hezekiah is because they're intermarrying with the people around them, and Baal and pagan worship was infiltrating everything, and they've already taken a vow, we're not going to do this, and he gets back and it's happening, and I think a fuse blew. That's it. And some of them are there, he grabs them by the hair and starts beating them until their hair comes out. Now, is that a godly response? God doesn't seem to mind. I'm not saying any of us should do that. But it says, And then I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. He's like, Let's do this again. And it's like he said, How many times 
do I have to tell you? We're going to get this right. You see, this is about more than just your life. First and foremost, this is about God's kingdom. If, if you don't get anything else out of this sermon series, I hope you at least bring out of it a renewed commitment to God's kingdom. Because that's what matters. Seasons come and go in churches and pastors come and go and people come and go. But you know what remains? The kingdom of God. And we keep serving the kingdom of God because this is about him and his kingdom. Nehemiah was about God's kingdom and he got stuff done for God's kingdom. The people, unfortunately, were about themselves. And what did they do? They did things that were for themselves. And those two paths always come to a head. Always. You cannot live a life for yourself and live a life for the kingdom of God at the same time. It can't be done. You will forsake one and love the other. You cannot serve two masters. And second, this is about the future of your family, your people, and your land. Nehemiah had already charged them to fight for their families, their brothers, their wives, their children. You remember that? And he said, fight, get up, do this. And they all said, yeah, and they did it. And then when they got comfortable, they immediately started doing all the things that would hurt their families and their brothers and their wives and their children and their land. Immediately. Why? Because their hearts hadn't changed. And so to close this series, I want to close with Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Because I think this gets to the heart of it all. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek, what? First. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? All these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God is what matters. And if we will build his kingdom and we will be faithful to his kingdom, what does he say? He says, I'll take care of everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his, what? Righteousness. That involves obedience. That involves us having purpose. That involves being a living sacrifice. That means we have to be about what's happening. It's not waiting for God to just make it happen. It's about us walking in the commandments that he has given us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. All these things will be added to you. And so what do we do? We look at being faithful. Week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. Be faithful to what God has put in front of you. What has God put in front of you? Right now in your life, what has God put in front of you? Right now in my life, he's put all of you in front of me. So it's my call to be faithful. To be faithful to what God has called me to do, to serve you, to minister, to bring you the word of God. To love you, to, to, to be your pastor. That is what he has called me to do, and that's what I want to pour myself into. What has he put in front of you? In your family, in your job? In your world around you, what has he put in front of you to be faithful to? 
Maybe he's called you to stand alone somewhere. Maybe he's called you to be a part of something. So, you know, there, there's all kinds of things. But where has he called you to be faithful? One of the things he called on his church to do was to celebrate what we call communion or the Lord's Supper together. He gathered with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And he told them, you know, I am. He basically revealed that he was the Passover lamb. And this is right after he has cleansed the temple. Don't you find that kind of amazing that he's like, yeah, I'm about to be killed. (laughs) You know why? Because he cleansed the temple and that was enough. They'd finally had enough of him. And they said, we have to kill him. We have to get rid of him. But it was all a part of God's plan, and Jesus was willing to go through it. He was faithful to what God put in front of him every single moment of his life, and he did it perfectly without sin. Even when it led him to the cross. Think of that. How faithful would we be if we knew at the end of our faithfulness, the reward for all our faithfulness is the cross. That that's the culmination of faithfulness is is the cross. Yet that's what Jesus did. And the scripture says that he did it for the joy set before him. What was the joy? God's kingdom. And you in God's kingdom. Because that's what he was doing. That's what the cross was about. Making a way for all of us to be in God's kingdom. And so he gathered with his friends. And he took the bread and he said, this bread is my body which shall be broken for you. And after he had taken the bread, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant which shall be given for you and then he told them do this in remembrance of me so together we take of the bread and we drink of the cup Father God, thank you. God, I pray, Lord, that you bring out the Nehemiah in each one of us. Maybe not in the sense of being, you know, amazing leaders at everything, but just a heart of faithfulness for your kingdom. That God, that each of us would be faithful to what you have put in front of us. And we would continue that faithfulness week in and week out, month in, month out, year in and year out. That God, our lives would reflect consistency of faithfulness. And God, where we need to correct, we'll be quick to correct. Where we need to mend, we'll mend. Where we need to be bold, we will be bold. But God, do not let us let our guard down so that a Tobiah moves into the temple of our lives. 
God, don't let us look at broken walls and think that they have to stay that way. God, lead us so that we will know that you are present and that our obedience is always worth it, is always meaningful, and will bear fruit as you see fit. Lord Jesus, you said if we abide in you, in you and us, we will bear much fruit. We pray that our lives are a vineyard for your kingdom. That the fruit is evident. Even though it will set us at odds with the world, God, that we will have the love of Christ and the, the power of the Spirit guiding us, bringing us comfort and peace all the days of our lives. Father, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.